This episode of Beyond Barbarossa is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy. The true story of a Canadian drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time to be thrown against Operation Barbarossa, the largest land invasion in human history. You can find it on the author's website, scottburyauthor.com. Beyond Barbarossa, the Eastern Front Podcast, Episode 2, The Twisted Evil Inside-Out Rom-Com. Hello, history buffs. Welcome back to the Eastern Front, the only podcast so far that focuses on the biggest part of the Second World War, the death struggle between the competing tyrants of the early 20th century, Nazi Germany and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. I'm your host, Scott Burry. Last episode, we covered the first day of the war, June 22, 1941. The launch of Operation Barbarossa, the largest land invasion in history. The stunning success of the Blitzkrieg in the East, the staggering losses on both sides, and the incredulous response of the combatants and of the world. This episode, we're going to back up a little to gain some context to understand just what brought these two dictatorships to the brink of war and to understand what else was going on in the war and elsewhere in the world. So let's start with Hitler and Stalin, the leaders, the tyrants. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about them. There are a ton of books, films, podcasts, all kinds of other material about them, their lives, and the rise to power. I will say, though, that this clash between these totalitarian, brutal regimes went through some interesting, even baffling turns leading up to the beginning of the invasion, like the brief alliance between them. So by the mid-1930s, both Hitler and Stalin were firmly and personally complete control of their respective countries. By 1933, Hitler had solidified complete power in Germany. Stalin's hold on the Soviet Union preceded that by a good 10 years. Now, Hitler loathed what he called Bolshevism, and Stalin in particular. He was clear about this. In his manifesto-slash-autobiography, Mein Kampf, and elsewhere, he stated his intention to eliminate communism and turn the Slavic populations of Eastern Europe into slaves, or kill them entirely. Eastern Europe, specifically Ukraine, would become the source of food for the German nation, and supply a Lebensraum, or living space, for the German people. Hitler fostered relations with other leaders in other countries, like Mussolini in Italy, Franco in Spain, and fascists in Hungary and elsewhere. He cemented his power in Germany through an alliance with its military leaders, promised to rearm the country in defiance of the Versailles Treaty that ended World War I, and he followed through. He supported and promoted a new generation of leaders who brought innovations in weapons, strategy, and tactics. By the late 1930s, the German armed forces had a fearsome, well-earned reputation. With the invasions of Poland, France, Denmark, Norway, Yugoslavia, Greece, and Crete, it was thought invincible. Stalin, in the meantime, had been similarly building and modernizing the USSR's military might, while exporting communism around the world, communism dominated and directed by Moscow. By 1940, the USSR had the largest and most mechanized military in the world, 
despite that common misconception here in the West about its military backwardness. But at the same time, Stalin had crippled the Red Army in key ways throughout the 1920s and 30s. From the time of the October Revolution in 1917, the communists appointed political commissars as co-commanders of every unit to ensure military commanders adhere to communist dogma. Then, in 1930, came Stalin's Great Purge. Between 1936 and 1938, the famously paranoid Stalin directed his secret police, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, or NKVD, to arrest potential political rivals, government officials and regional party leaders, anyone who might think differently than him or entertain ideas about replacing him at the pinnacle of power. The Great Purge arrested, jailed, and executed Communist Party leaders like Grigory Zinoviev and Nikolai Bukharin. It targeted kulaks, who were independent small farmers who resisted collectivization, and anyone else who could be accused of being anti-Soviet. Ethnic minorities were in for special oppression. More than 85,000 ethnic Poles were murdered by the NKVD. Ethnic Finns, Latvians, Estonians, Afghans, Greek, and Chinese Soviets were also among the millions killed. Some 2,000 intellectuals, writers, artists, and musicians were arrested and sent to concentration camp, of whom 1,500 died. Then Stalin's attention turned to the Red Army. The Purge arrested and killed three of the five marshals of the USSR, the highest-ranking leaders of the armed forces, 13 of 15 army commanders, eight of the nine admirals of the Navy, 50 out of 57 Army Corps commanders, 154 of 186 division commanders, and almost all the political commissars. It's not hard to imagine how much this removal of the most experienced senior leadership could have on the armed forces' effectiveness. Still, through sheer brutality, Stalin built up the Red Army to be the biggest on earth, with more mechanized forces, more airplanes, and more tanks but than anyone else. By 1941, the USSR had the best tank in the world, the almost legendary T-34. The USSR still faced a lot of logistical problems caused by the country's vast distances and its poor roads, which, as we saw in the first episode, hindered not only the Red Army, but the invading Germans as well. Through the 1930s, Hitler's plans advanced and became more obvious. The rest of the world became alarmed, but not to the point of actually doing anything. Sound familiar, 2022? 80 years later, we can see the tyrant's intentions clearly. Today's intentions should be pretty clear too, despite what our leaders say, but that's a subject for another podcast. So now we come to the part of the story that's like a reflection of romantic comedy in a distorted evil mirror. We're in a typical rom-com, the two romantic leads start out indifferent or sometimes hostile to each other. They may have other romantic interests, but gradually they recognize their mutual attraction and finally overcome these obstacles to come together. In a twisted reflection of that, we have Germany and the USSR flirting lethally with other countries such as, in 1938, Hitler's Germany annexed Austria under the pretext of uniting German people. In October, Hitler annexed large swaths of Czechoslovakia, again under the justification of protecting German-speaking people against 
Czechoslovak oppression. More words that resonate in 2022. The League of Nations accepted the acquisition of Czechoslovak territory by Germany as the price of peace in our time. Hitler's ambition did not end there. Consigning a nation or two nations to the appetite of a tyrant only ever leads to a greater appetite. So by March 1939, Germany occupied all of Czechoslovakia except for a couple of little pockets that went to Poland and Hungary. The USSR followed a similar pattern, you know, the other side of the rom-com. Through the 1930s, Stalin increased pressure on Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia to implement policies favorable to the USSR and pretty much forced them to put socialists in power. In 1938, the Soviets demanded Finland's neutrality in case hostilities broke out between the USSR and Germany. Stalin's Soviet Union wasn't exactly absent from the international stage at this point either. In addition to building up its armed forces, it was putting them to use, just not in Europe. One aspect of the USSR that often gets overlooked is that it stretched, like Russia does today, eastward all the way to the Pacific Ocean. In the 1930s, that brought it up against an expansionary Japanese empire. It was inevitable that the two would clash. And they did. Repeatedly. These two sides had already met. The Japanese and Russian empires fought a war in 1905, which was a disaster for Russia. The Imperial Japanese Navy sank most of their Russian Navy, and this played a major role in weakening the Romanov dynasty. And that led, of course, to the revolution in 1917. But again, that's a subject for another podcast. So by the 1930s, the USSR and the expanding Japanese Empire still shared a border in the Russian Far East, and that was a recipe for trouble. In the early 1930s, Mongolia was basically a client state of the USSR, and Japan had its own client state, Manchukuo. Tensions between the two escalated. In 1935, the two empires exchanged gunfire across their border. Border clashes continued, mounting ever higher, until Japan invaded China in 1937. In August 1938, Japan attempted to enter territory at that point claimed by the USSR and expelled a Soviet garrison, and then repulsed counterattacks by a superior Soviet force. The border between Mongolia and Manchuria, or Manchukuo, was disputed in several places. One was around the town of Nomahan. Mongolian forces entered the area and were repeatedly repulsed by the Japanese. The situation escalated through May and June 1939 until Japanese forces numbered 30,000 in the area. The Soviets sent a core strength force of motorized and mechanized forces, led by future Marshal of the Soviet Union, Georgi Zhukov. Both sides say the other side started it. But on June 27th, the Japanese struck a Soviet airbase in the area. Because of convoluted politics, the attack had not been sanctioned by the Imperial Japanese Army headquarters in Tokyo. Thus began the Battle of Kalkan Gol, named for a river that flowed through the battlefield, also called the Nomahan Incident by the Japanese. So Tokyo ordered the forces in Mongolia not to conduct any more airstrikes in an attempt to prevent the conflict from escalating. 
However, they did order ground forces to, quote, expel the invaders, end quote. From July 2nd to 25th, 1939, the Japanese attempted to wipe out the larger Soviet forces, but they met stubborn resistance. After a month or so of stalemate, the Red Army brought in three rifle divisions, two tank divisions with two additional tank brigades, two motorized infantry divisions, and over 550 fighter and bomber airplanes. Mongolian allies contributed two cavalry divisions. Despite this overwhelming numerical superiority, the Soviet counterattacks were thrown back. But they kept on. Finally, on August 20th, 1939, some 50,000 Soviet and Mongolian soldiers attacked, swept around the Japanese flanks, and destroyed the Japanese force by the end of August. The Soviet Union and Japan signed a ceasefire on September 15th, and two days later, well, I'll get to that. But let's just say that at this point, the Soviet Union could be assured it would not be facing a two-front war in case of hostilities on its western flank against Germany. On August 23rd, 1939, we have the next step in the rom-com. That was the day that these evil romantic partners signed the Treaty of Non-Aggression between Germany and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, commonly known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact after the respective foreign ministers. This was a mutual guarantee of peace between the two countries, a friendship. They made promises they would not ally or aid each other's enemies. And then there was the secret clause, which divided Eastern Europe between them. Germany's so-called sphere of influence, included most of Poland, Lithuania, and of course anything west of Germany. Meanwhile, the USSR's sphere included Finland, Estonia, and Latvia, and an area called Bessarabia, historically important to the Russians, essentially what's now Moldova. In addition, there was an important commercial aspect to the agreement, an aspect that doesn't get much attention in the West. Craig Luther in the first day of the Eastern Front, says, quote, In 1940, in fact, 65% of Germany's chrome ore supplies, 55% of its manganese, 40% of its nickel imports, and 34% of its imported oil were supplied by Russia. End quote. This is in addition to the millions of tons of rubber the USSR supplied in return for weapons, other manufactured goods, and skilled training. The trade between these two countries was huge. September 1st, 1939, six months after seizing Czechoslovakia, Germany invaded Poland. Now, under terms of an alliance Poland had made years earlier, the UK and France declared war on Germany in response. This became what was called the Phony War. As the German blitzkrieg swept across Poland, the British and French made noise and protests but they did little militarily. Then on September 17th, the USSR invaded Poland from the east. Remember that this was two days after the USSR signed its ceasefire agreement with the Empire of Japan. So in effect, now that it had a ceasefire on its eastern flank and on its western front, the USSR seized the opportunity to share with its ideological enemy, 
the territory of a sovereign country, Poland. In late September and October, the Soviets forced the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to accept Red Army bases and forced them to accept puppet governments. And this actually violated the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact because under that pact, Lithuania was supposed to be in Germany's sphere of influence. But Germany more or less let it slide. That October, so we're talking October 1939, just after the end of the invasion and occupation of Poland. The Soviets demanded a large part of the Karelian Isthmus from Finland, as well as islands in the Gulf of Finland and the Rabachi Peninsula. This was Finland's southernmost point, so they could build a naval base on it. This would give them control over the shipping routes to Leningrad, so protection, but also threatening to anyone else. The Soviets also demanded large areas of territory along that long north-south border between Finland and the USSR and a port on the Barents Sea in the far north, basically the Arctic Ocean. Finland tried to make counter-offers, but they were not satisfactory. So on November 30th, 1939, 21 Red Army divisions with 450,000 men invaded Finland along the Karelian Isthmus into central Finland and along the northern coast. Various estimates, actually, kind of some conflict here, but depending on who you believe, the total numbers of Soviet forces could be as high as 760,000 men, thousands of tanks, and 3,880 aircraft, an immense force. Facing them, the Finns had about 300,000 soldiers, 32 tanks, and 114 aircraft, plus large numbers of civilian reservists, in fact, just about every adult male. They were severely under-equipped with weapons and especially ammunition, but all members and reservists were well-trained in winter survival including skiing, and reservists had good winter clothing. This is essential because this was the Winter War. So while the Finns had to sue for peace by 1940 and gave up significant areas of land, they exacted a high price. Most current estimates put the Soviet losses as high as 168,000 soldiers dead or missing. They lost 3,500 tanks and about 1,000 aircraft. For their side, Finland lost 20 to 30 tanks, 62 aircraft, and compared to 168,000 losses of of men, they lost 25,904 sailors, soldiers, and airmen, plus 43,557 wounded, from 800 to 1,100 captured, and about 957 civilians killed in air raids. In other words, about a fifth to a seventh of the losses of the Soviets. The other effect of the Winter War was to drive the Finns into becoming reluctant allies of Germany. In June 1940, as Germany was deploying its blitzkrieg across Western Europe, the USSR abandoned all of Princess's of mutual assistance and annexed the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania followed by forcing Romania to cede Bessarabia and Bukovina. So here we are in 1941. Now, Nazi Germany and the USSR share a direct border without any buffer states between them. 
Poland as an independent country has ceased to exist. The demarcation line between the USSR and Nazi Germany runs through what had been Poland. Ironically, this united ethnic Ukraine, roughly along the border of today, but more on that later. Now, despite popular misconceptions, Stalin was not deep in denial about Hitler's intentions. He knew Hitler was going to invade, but he hoped that it wouldn't happen until 1942. Not out of wishful thinking, but because the USSR and the Red Army simply wouldn't be ready until then. They were rebuilding, reorganizing, rearming fast, but they needed more time. So, uh, somewhat elated from their optimal plans, which we'll cover another time, Nazi Germany invaded the USSR on June 22, 1941, a year before the Red Army could be ready. But again, before we get into that, you have to look at the warning signs. Signs that the Soviet government, actually Stalin personally, chose to ignore. The invasion of Poland was the first major alarm, followed by the occupation of the Low Countries in France in summer 1940, the Battle of Britain, which the Germans lost, action in the Mediterranean and Northern Africa, the invasion of Yugoslavia and Greece. Hitler's intentions were obvious. More warning signs. In March 1941, the U.S. gave the Soviet ambassador in Washington a copy of Hitler's invasion plans, which they had received from their commercial attaché in Berlin. In April 1941, Winston Churchill sent a message to Stalin through the British ambassador, explaining that Hitler had told Prince Paul of Yugoslavia that Germany would attack the Soviet Union by June 30th. Richard Sorge was ostensibly a Nazi agent in Tokyo. In reality, he was a secret agent of the USSR, who used his close connections with German and Japanese officials to gather intelligence, which he then uh, funneled over to Moscow. Now, depending on which source you believe, either on May 12th or May 30th, 1941, he reported to Moscow that Germany would attack in the latter half of June although he was never sure about the date. At one point, he estimated around June 20th. There were plenty of warning signs closer to home, too, including repeated violations of Soviet airspace by German planes, clearly doing reconnaissance. In mid-May, the families of German diplomats began leaving Moscow for home. German shipments of manufactured and other goods to the USSR ceased for flimsy reasons. For months, the Soviet embassy in Berlin had been sending reports of German troops and material moving from west to east. On June 11th, the Politburo learned that German diplomats were burning documents in the embassy. Within days, German ships began leaving Soviet harbors in a hurry. Incredibly, the Soviets dismissed these warnings as German provocation. They thought the Germans were looking for an excuse, a casus belli. Stalin and Molotov both refused to accept Churchill's note. On being told about German ships leaving Soviet ports, Molotov said, only a fool would attack us. Stalin ordered that German planes that overflew Soviet airspace not be fired on. That would be a provocation. Even though the Germans had been withholding shipments of manufactured goods, Stalin insisted that oil and other resources continue to be shipped west. 
and while the Red Army was moving reserves behind the new frontiers, it was done in a way to avoid provocation. This was despite the fact that officers and men were allowed to go on leave up to the day before the invasion. In fact, the commissar in charge of Leningrad left for a three-week vacation at his dacha in the country just days before the invasion. Suffice to say, his vacation was cut short in the most violent way imaginable. When Colonel General Kirponos, commander of the Kiev Special Military District in the south, suggested evacuating civilians in Ukraine, he was countermanded by Defense Commissar Semyon Timoshenko as late as June 19th. Then the kicker. From June 14th through 18th, 1941, a Soviet secret agent in Switzerland named Alexander Foote, a deserter from the Royal Air Force, transmitted a report on a German military operation codenamed, get this, Barbarossa. It took Foote four days to transmit the report by radio, which detailed the German High Command's plan for a surprise invasion and conquer all Soviet territory west of the Ural Mountains. On the last day of the transmission, June 18, Foote transmitted, quote, General attack on territories occupied by Russians dawn of Sunday, 22nd June, 3.15 a.m., end quote. Dead on. In the evening of June 18th, a young German soldier defected to the Soviet side in Ukraine. He explained that he had struck an officer and was about to be court-martialed, so he deserted. He also warned that the German army would attack all along the frontier at 4 a.m. on June 22nd. Only on the afternoon of June 21st, the eve of the invasion, did Stalin agree to man Moscow's anti-aircraft defenses at 75%. At 12.30 a.m. on June 22nd, Less than three hours before the invasion would begin, Stalin issued orders to commanders along the frontier to bring their troops to combat readiness, but secretly, again, hoping to avoid provocations. So, now we're caught up. Next episode, the face-off. The forces that Germany and the USSR line up along their new frontier. For now... Thank you again to all who've supported the show through Kickstarter and those who've added support through the Patreon link. Thanks to CJ Sally, Chris Ward from Japan, Janet Oakley from the Pacific Northwest, Roger S. Botcher from Hollywood, California, Jeff G. Turner from Woi Woi, Australia, Jan Machalek, you didn't tell me where you're from, and Sherilyn McQueen from Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks again, all. You'll all be getting a copy of the Eastern Front Trilogy. Remember that you can continue to support the program through Patreon, and I would truly appreciate it. Remember that Patreon supporters get early access to the podcast, as well as special bonus episodes. The first one comes out soon, focusing on the invasion of Poland. So before my puppy eats this desk, I better go and feed her. So thank you all for listening to the second episode of Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast on the history of the Eastern Front of World War II, with music by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next week, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.